0: Ha! <laughs>
1: listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwara to Human Serviette radio show. You just heard right there, DOA with last night. And on the Nardwara to Human Serviette radio show today, an interview with... Joey Shithead from DOA, who next week, next Friday night, are celebrating their 30th anniversary with a gig at the Commodore Ballroom. Also on the Nardwarda Human Serviette radio show here today, an interview with Jay-Z. Jay-Z and DOA today on the a Human Serviette radio show. And here's some more. DOA! <laughs>
0: What you want I will I don't want to hold you I don't want to know you I don't want to be with you I'll even say Got it. Shopping right, sitting here with another gun Move back to the sun Just waiting for you Waiting for you
1: You're still listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwari Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard New Wave Sucks by DOA, and before that, Disco Sucks by DOA, and before that, Waiting for You by DOA, and I Don't Give a Shit by DOA, and before that, DOA doing 13, and today on a Nerdwater Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Jay-Z and DOA. Now, here is some live DOA. Hopefully.
0: Cause people don't mean nothing against a buddy buck Yeah, now's the time to stand up This ain't the time to quit Why, well, people all together now, let's call bullshit bullshit, bullshit. Down on the lockboards, out in the street Billions of crates are laughing, throwing niggles at your feet But down on your lockboards, bad out in the street Billions of friends are laughing, throwing tickles at your feet. Why down on your white balls and out in the street? Why on some are laughing, doing kickless at your feet. Why down on your like balls and out in the street? Billions of friends are laughing, throwing kickls at your feet. Why down on your like balls and out in the street? Billions of crabs.
1: And you're still listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Ward, a human serviette radio show. And who do we have on the line right now? Hello, are you there, caller?
2: Hi, the caller is here. It's uh, Joe Shithead here. How you doing? Good. Who are you? I'm the singer and uh, guitar player for DOA. That's who I am.
1: 30 years strong, Joey Shithead. When was the actual incorporation of DOA? Is it 31 years now, not 30? Is it 31?
2: Uh, it was, no, it's, it's uh, 30 and a bit, I guess. I think we first show was February 11, 1978. So you can say 30 and 6 months or something like that.
1: But it started with The Skulls in 77. That was the first punk rock that Joey did. Yeah,
2: I, I mean there wasn't that. some of the songs were the same. We said that the, the Skulls, you know, was like um <clears throat> Dimwit, uh Rest His Soul, uh Simon Warner, Wimpy and Myself and then uh we split uh you know, we started in 77 and split about uh January 78 and then everybody moved back from Toronto to Vancouver. And, uh, and Wimpy and Dimwit starred the Subhumans along with Brad Kent. And I starred uh, DOA along with uh, Chuck Piscuits, uh, Dimwit's little brother, and uh, Randy.
1: Joey, who is in DOA today? And who will be playing next Friday night yeah, as okay. you celebrate that's, that's, 30 that's, years' worth of DOA?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, poor uh, Tom, uh, Tom Jones is the drummer. He used to drum with uh, the Vaughn Zippers, uh, or James is uh, his given name. And uh, he's been with us for about... Uh, 13, 14 months now, around there. You know, done a few tours, done they played on the record. On bass is uh, Dan. Randy's not with us. Uh, we decided, we agreed to disagree, and uh, so therefore he's not with us. And uh, he did, but Randy did play on the new album on Northern Adventure, but he won't be at the show. And then we have a bunch of guests coming up for the for the show at the Commodore next Friday.
1: Namely, Chuck Biscuits filling in on drums. When's the last time? When's <laughs> Chuck, the last time? I,
2: I, I talked to Chuck once in a while. He's doing okay. Um... He's out of the music business. He's, um, I don't know what the, way, the right way to put it is, but uh, a little bit embittered by showbiz. Like, he was in some uh, bands that are pretty successful, like Danzig. Uh, they sold a lot of record back, records back in their days, you might say. And uh, he was with Social D. And, um, and then also, of course, he played with us and Black Flag and uh, the Circle Jerk. So it's like, to me, he's like the, the all-time all-star punk rock drummer. Like, he's the the best or whatever, right? You know? There's, I mean, some new kids around these days that are pretty close, right? But uh, he's retired from music, sadly.
1: Is he a songwriter? Because I began an Art to Human Serviette radio show with the song Last Night off Something Better Change, which is credited to Sea Biscuits.
2: Yeah, that was one actually a funny story about that one. I won't make it too long. But uh, we had to leave on, an, on a tour, and we had one last night in the studio, and everybody else in the band left before us, uh, before Chuck and I, because we were, uh, I had to sing the song, uh, which I think think is a real good song, but we were arguing uh, about uh, the lyrics. Like, I didn't like them, and he's going, no, no, it's got to be this way. And I'm going, no, 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 you, you, you know, that kind of thing, uh, cursing back and forth. And uh, uh, so I ended up doing the, the lyrics, and, uh, you know, that, <clears throat> that, that, there's the song, but we uh, were about four or five hours behind the rest of the entourage. It seems and then that, we showed up in Bellingham. Of course, they were all like uh, drunk as could be, waiting for us, right? So,
1: so that's when the song gestated. But it says C. Biscuits. He's the sole writing credit on this one, Joey. See yeah, Biscuits. he did
2: most of the stuff that he's involved with on the first two DoA albums. That him and I wrote together, and he was like probably the best songwriting partner I ever had. I would say, um, good, 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 natural songwriter for sure. And, and uh, World War Three. Uh, what else? Two plus two. The enemy. Um, and a few songs on uh, Hardcore Eighty One as well, right? That we wrote together.
1: How old was he at that time? Was he like fifteen or sixteen? Fifteen when he came along because
2: he used to. Um, we used to practice. Uh, for people who don't know, but Dimwit is Chuck's uh, older brother and was also in DOA a couple times in the '80s, and uh, and uh, we used to practice in Dimwit's garage in North Burnaby, like Jerry Hanna and Brian Goble from Subhumans, myself, and Dimwit were like the, the, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse or whatever, the Four Amigos. And uh, Chuck would sit up on a bunk and play along with us on bongos when he was about 12, 11 or 12. And uh, the, the, at the Skulls in the end of 77, we moved out to Toronto and we came back and I was looking for a drummer and I tried out Randy Rampage, who was not a bad drummer, but I didn't think he was real great, so I taught him to play bass and then I tried out Biscuits and I went, wow, this kid's got it, you know. And that's uh, kind of how D.O.A. began.
1: So writing that song last night, was he 15 at that time? Was he 16? Was he 17? Okay,
2: that's, that's 1980 when we record that over at Ocean Sound. So I'd say he'd be 17 by then.
1: In 1980, when Something Better change was laid down. So we played last night yeah. to begin the Nerdware the Human Serviette radio show. I played a whole bunch of other tracks there, too. The last couple ones that I actually played were from the Triumph of the Ignoroids LP. And I play the Nazi Training Camp and Want Some Bondage. What can you explain about this LP? When I was queuing up the Nazi Training Camp song, the live DOA, it had a huge run-in groove. What's the deal on that?
2: Well, I guess because it, it, it's a 12-inch uh, EP, there's only two songs per side, right? And uh, I guess that's just the way the guys at, o, at, not Ocean, but... Um, IRC? IRC, down in South Vancouver, Vancouver's one and only pressing plant. I, I guess, no, that's not true because was also uh, the Praise the Lord records, but uh, they would not press the UA records because we were seen as, as being satanic and uh, disturbing and stuff like that. So, IRC, they just put a big long lead in, and then the songs condensed. Rather, you think when you make a 12 inch single these days, if you see one, it takes up all the groove, because the wider the groove, the better the sound type thing, right? And, uh, but that record was at the Battle of the Bands at the Body Shop, which used to be on Hornby Street. And uh, uh, who played there was us and uh, No Fun from uh, uh, Surrey and Doug and the Slugs. And we were the fourth finalists along with this other band called Sapphire. And um, we all lost to this horrible disco band called Sapphire. But anyways, Tom Harrison had the, the foresight uh, to record um, the DOA's live session. And they, and they also had the money to pay for it. So he said, sure, you want to pull an EP? Go ahead there, pal. I mean, Tom was a great guy. He was responsible for a lot of the great music, like helping people along in Vancouver. Like that, to me, he's like a major influence on a lot of people in the city. And uh, so we did those songs, and... You know, when I heard that, when I hear that record, I started laughing because I think it was one of the funniest fucking uh, sounds I've ever heard. It's so, it's so raw, it's great. And uh, I remember at the time Tom Jeffries, this twit that was working for a big radio station in Vancouver, it was his example about how, this, how much the establishment hated punk rock. He put it on that record, played about 10 seconds, and they ground the needle across the entire thing and came out with the statement said, remember, punk, punk rock is junk rock. That was his big uh, big stab at punk rock,
1: right? So, And we heard Joey, and we're speaking here to Joey Shithead from DOA, who are playing next Friday night at the Commodore, 30 years of DOA. We heard, Joey, Nazi Training Camp and Want Some Bondage. Now, the song Want Some Bondage, was there ever a studio version of that song?
2: No, we didn't, and we, we did it live for a couple of years, so there's probably some other live recordings of that. Uh, again, that was uh, a Chuck Biscuit song, right? As you can hear him and I alternating on uh, uh, the vocals on that, right? Uh, so, no, we like playing it. It just didn't make it uh, onto a record or a single.
1: So I played the record, and I kind of mentioned what the record looked like, but I haven't really mentioned what the record looks like. What does the record look like for the people well, that are wondering Joey Shithead?
2: There's a picture of uh, uh, Margaret Trudeau, who was uh, married to uh, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau at the time. And it was a picture of her at Club 54, hanging out with the Rolling Stones, but she's got her legs hiked up on a bench and kind of um, sitting with her back against the wall, but kind of spread eagled. And you know what? She's not wearing any undergarments, shall we say? So you get that's part of the cover. And there's a a picture of uh, Rod Stewart accepting a record uh, from the Record Association, um, which we got actually had a bit of a threat of a lawsuit over that, but somehow. can our old manager dissolve that and uh, Anita Bryant is
1: on there and uh, what was your beef with Anita Bryant well she was the, this
2: anti-gay stuff that she was pushing when she because she was the former Florida sunshine girl and beauty queen type thing from the United States Florida to be exact and uh, you know when you know people were trying to get rights she was solidly against it you know like she would just had had gay people thrown in jail or whatever and had the key thrown away you know like Nazi Germany or whatever type thing, and so we uh, were ridiculing the Rod Stewart. And um, also the fourth uh, main ingredient in the cover is the Ayatollah Khomeini, Khomeini uh, who was the, the revolutionary leader of Iran, and also I would deem as uh, a complete insaneoid uh, who's got no place leading any country, any time or any place.
1: Joey, looking at the record some more and looking more at Margaret Trudeau, I have an uncensored version oh. of the cover. Now, I heard that the censored version is worth more than the uncensored version. What's the deal on the censored version and the uncensored version and yeah, the different think, prices? Yeah, well, you've got
2: one of the ones, if it's, if it's a black and white and it's a solid cardboard cover and it's uncensored, I think that is worth more, if you ask me. Because what happened, we went away on tour, and Roy from Friends Records, or uh, as we used to call him, Roy the Nose Atkinson, right? Um, he had thought that he could say oh, I'll, "I'll sell more DOA if I if I censor this, right?" And so he he blocked out the words "Let's fuck and uh, "Margaret trudeau's snatch, that kind of thing, and uh, uh, and then he could get in Woodward's, which was a big chain at the time through BC and Alberta, right? And uh, <clears throat> But he never asked us about it, so we were furious with the guy, right? And uh, then later on, about 20 years later, I found this guy had black and white, uncensored, but they were floppy, like a, like a floppy paper instead of a cardboard cover. There's actually three different versions of that.
1: I have, it's a floppy cover. It's, a fl- it's like a piece of paper. Yeah, it, that,
2: and that, that was the third thing that Roy did. I guess it saved money because it was just like, a, um, like a, a regular printer rather than having to glue the cardboard. You know the story with the first album, right? Just a little quick aside when you're talking about covers and stuff. With the first album of DOA, if you find an original copy, look on the inside, and the inside's black. And what it was, at IRC, they had a bunch of records they couldn't sell, so they painted the inside black, the original, the, what was the original cover, and folded them over. So I believe that the, the DOA records actually printed on old uh, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton covers.
1: Did anybody notice that when they were opening up the records? No, but you can
2: kind of see like an image, and then the guy from the plot said, oh, yeah, what, what the hell you do? We just fold these things over and just saw them again. Were we supposed to throw them out? You know, it was one of those kind of things, right? So,
1: will try of the Ignoroids be reissued, or has it been reissued, Joey? Shithead. No, it's just uh, the,
2: the only place you really get it easily, it's that been tagged onto um, the end of the Hardcore 81 CD as like sort of four bonus tracks just because I thought the Hardcore one CD was like so short, it's only like 18 minutes in total, like 11 minutes, first side, seven minutes, second side. So on the second side, we threw all four songs from uh, Triumph of the Ignorance on there. Um, oh, great. I, I, I correct myself, though. Uh, there's a guy in Italy that I let uh, put out a seven-inch version of that, which also has another weird bonus track that Wimpy's singing from uh, a later edition of DOA. So uh, uh, not to confuse everybody out there, but yeah, there's a couple of ways to get it, right? But the easiest one's the hardcore 81 CD that's out now.
1: Joey from DOA, we also played Marijuana Motherfucker. Huh. That particular song, was that a Joey Shithead Jello Biafra composition?
2: No, uh, funny, I just talked to Biafra today, and he's doing all right. So I just passed the word on everybody, right? So, um, you know what? Uh, no, it was a David Peel. Uh, when we were kids in high school in North Burnaby, like then Wim- uh, Wimpy, Jerry Hanna, Jerry Useless, uh, we... Uh, used to have found this record. It's called David Peel and the Lower East Side. And uh, the deal with the record was, they had, he was a marijuana activist, and the, the Lower East Side were like a jug band. And they played like tamarines and buckets, and one guy would have an acoustic guitar, that kind of thing, you know, street-type street stuff, right? Pretty cool. And, uh, but he had one song, was Have a Marijuana, and he had another song, called, it was called the Up Against the Wall, Motherfucker, which was Here Comes the Cop, all dressed in blue. He's got a gun, he's after me, he's after you, type that on and on and so i just took the the two songs and melded them together and then wrote a wrote a bridge for it type thing
1: when I saw you perform with the Melvins and Jello Biafra... Yeah, that was a good show. ...a, a couple of years ago, you did the Marijuana Motherfucker, and it got as great a response as you doing World War III, one of the DOA classics. What sort of response did you get from doing some of the newer songs? As Marijuana Motherfucker is a newer, a newish DOA yeah, song. Yeah,
2: the middle period or newer, yeah. Like, you know the kids know what? were That's really singing thing.
1: that. Like, when you got, you just played with Rancid, Did yeah. you played the Marijuana Motherfucker.
2: It, that song's huge every night and you know what it was on the black spot originally and then we re, re- Dan Yoremko uh, and uh, Baldini and I re recorded it for uh uh Live for Your Die about 4 years ago and because it, the black spot sold sold so poorly that I didn't, nobody had ever heard it so you know um but everybody knew the song so it was the weirdest thing i couldn't figure out how it got around like people were making uh, you know, used to be making cassettes out, now they're burning CDs, and it's just one of those funny kind of songs that uh, never sold a lot, but people really know it. So, yeah, we it every night.
1: How was the response playing with Rancid? How long have you known Rancid? Like, I know Lars from Rancid loves DOA. He yeah. loves the enemy. When did you first meet Rancid? When did you first meet Lars?
2: Uh, we met them down at uh, the Gilman Street place in uh, Berkeley, which is the maximum rock and roll uh, club or all-ages club type thing. In '92, and then that same year, or '93, they came over and there was support for us in uh, Germany for about six days. And uh, the main feature of that was uh, how bloody cold it was, and uh, their band didn't work, and our band didn't work, and we could barely make shows. And you know, it was like a, you know, it was as bad as being in Canada in the wintertime type thing. So I've known since then, and. Uh, yeah, you know, Lars is a really cool guy, and they they got a great band. Like, they were smoking uh, Monday and Tuesday night in Calgary, and uh, um, hey, I, did, I hope we do some more shows with them. It was a lot of fun, actually.
1: Are they going to come to Vancouver?
2: They're working on a new record. Brett Gerbitz is uh, from of, uh, Epitaph, uh, Bad Religion fame, uh, for your listeners there, um, is going to produce it. So I guess we'll probably be out by next summer. And then, you know what, They probably I bet they will come to Vancouver.
1: We also played Billy and the Socrates, game speaking out yeah. to Joey from DOA, playing next Friday night at the Commodore Ballroom. 30 years of DOA, we played Billy and the Socrates.
2: Yeah, uh, that was a funny deal because what was happening at the time, uh Xbox 6, and, you know, it was, a, if people don't know, it was like the World's Fair is what they used to call it, but x 6 and that. Uh, we had this, like, down where False Creek is now, right, and, uh, the, you know, that area, the Roundhouse and all that kind of thing, and uh, by the football stadium. And, uh, you know, what, what happened is that a lot of people uh, that were living in rooming houses in the downtown east side and along Hastings Street got kicked out to make way for the tourists because, you know, the Expo is not quite like the Olympics. It's like it was six and a half months long, right, running through most of like 1986. And uh, so we did this song as a protest, um, Billy and Socrates, since obviously sung to the tune of uh, Wooly and the Poor Boys by uh, Creedence Clearwater, which is like one of my big influences or like one of my top five bands in the world type thing. And, uh, you know, we got this idea to do this benefit, and then a pretty cool thing, that's where I met Jim Green, who's a, a pal of mine, he's a councillor, ran for mayor last time, and... Uh, he said, that. well, how about doing a benefit for Dara, for these people that got kicked out, right? And so uh, DOA had to play acoustically at Malkin Bowl in Stanley Park. Um, that was it, the it, drunks on
1: acoustic gig, wasn't
2: not, it? Not quite, because the drunks on acoustic... Like, with this one, we did... It was serious. We did Billion and Silk Reds, of course, and then General Strike and a few other songs, you know, that like kind of that political side of DOA, for sure. Uh, and uh, we opened for Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie and... It was a great show. Uh, but the Drunks on Acoustic, uh, like, a few years after, about 1990, then uh, we started uh, John Card, Wimpy, myself, and Chris Proholm. Uh You know, John would play a snare drum and cymbal, and there the are three of us would play acoustic guitars, and we'd do stuff like uh, Delta Dawn and uh, Bottle of Wine. And, uh, you know, it was truly horrible, and the whole idea was that uh, we would take um, the prerequisite, um was that you take mushrooms before and then drink your face off and then get up and play. So you can, you know, well, you remember, but other people can probably imagine the results.
1: Joey, when you played Malcolm Bowl, you had to play acoustically. When do you first remember rock bands being able to play there? Because I was at the Stanley Park Singing Exhibition over Labor Day weekend. It was loud rock and roll music. When do you remember rock and roll coming into Malcolm Bowl?
2: Well, just before... uh the funny thing about the, just as an aside, the DOA thing. The reason why we couldn't play electrically is that our music would scare the animals and our fans would trample the flowers, which were probably both facts were true. But we disputed this with the old uh, um, Parks Commissioner George or Councilor uh, uh, George Pule. Uh, rock bands started playing there in like, like ten years ago. I, well, I, well, I'm thinking like thirteen years ago, cause then they you know Blue Rodeo plays there. It's not really a rock band, but they play there every summer type thing. And, uh, you know, it, it's a funny thing, but it's a beautiful place for a show, that's for sure.
1: We also played Disco Sucks and New Wave Sucks. Have right. you done any other sort of suck songs? Disco Sucks, New Wave Sucks, No yeah, we, Wave uh, Sucks. What uh, else uh, have you well, done?
2: Live, yeah, of course, there would be like, uh, uh, if, the promoter was, if the promoter was a cheapskate, then it would be like, No Beer Sucks. Or, uh, or you could dedicate it on certain nights to particular people in the audience or something like that. And maybe in that case it would kind of became the, the equivalent of uh, Let's Kill Johnny Stiff type thing, you know. Uh, but, no, the New Wave sucks. was just a show. Uh, we did that for a couple of years because um, uh, disco was kind of dead and then New Wave was, uh, had moved. Where New Wave and punk rock were really close together and it was always fun because you had bands that were like that uh, playing together on bills. And I thought they were some of the big, best shows I ever saw.
1: I like the way how you adapt it for the ages, which makes me think of Canadian heavy metal legend Thor. When did you first meet Canadian heavy metal legend Thor? When did you first see Thor, Joey Shedd? Because when I'm thinking about Thor and I'm thinking about the comparison between you doing disco sex and new wave sex, Thor does this amazing thing, you know, where he blows up a hot water bottle, where he bends steel. And he always says to the audience, you know, I bet Michael Jackson can't do that. And then 10 years later, he'll say, oh, I bet you didn't know the Backstreet Boys can do that. (laughs) And then 10 years later, he goes, I didn't know you think you could do Jack White and White Stripes. Like, he updates it, kind of like you're updating Disco Sucks and New Wave Sucks. I love the way how he keeps doing the same thing, but just changing it, the punchline, just ever so slightly. When did you first meet Thor? Or actually, when did you first see Thor? Because when I first met Thor, I couldn't believe how nice he was, Joey Shithead.
2: Yes, it was quite uh, funny. I think I met him like... um... Seven years ago, I used to have, like, an Internet uh, interview show called The Joe Show on my city radio, and uh, Thor was one of the guests, and I never remember him. Of course, I knew all about him and stuff like that, And uh, uh, from because, you know, he started started before DOA had started type thing, right? You know, they may go playing around town for, like, 35 years type thing or around the world. And, uh, yes, I was amazed by how how nice a guy he was, and then we did this uh, big uh, kickboxing uh, show at uh, the Pacific Coliseum, and we played in a a boxing ring. And we were Thor's band uh, for about four songs. You know, we played a couple of D.O.A. songs before that, right? And, uh, you know, it was just hilarious. And then uh, my uh, youngest boy, Clayton, uh, was about seven at the time, and he saw Thor with all these masks and costumes and axes and swords and all this stuff. And uh, a week later, Thor drove up in his car, and he didn't have any of the stage stuff on. And he went, hey, Clay, It's Thor. He went, that's not Thor. That is not Thor, right? So, But, uh, yeah, no, John's a great guy, and I'm, yeah, so known seven years.
1: Had you ever seen him perform, though, in the 70s? Like, what did no, DOA I, think I of him? No, I never
2: did, uh, unfortunately. I wish I had it gone, right? You know. How old are your
1: kids now, Joey Shithead?
2: Uh, 21, 19, and 12.
1: So they're almost kind yeah, of getting well, close well,
2: to so, um, Yeah, one of them's in SFU. Uh, oldest son, Jake, and my daughter, Georgia's uh working away, and she's out uh, of high school. And, the, yeah, my youngest boy, uh, Clay, he's in uh, grade seven.
1: Speaking of 12, 12 plus 1 equals 13. We played DOA 13. Right, right. Played Waiting For You. And then I Don't Give A Shit, that song, what's that song all about?
2: That was pretty well like Brad's, uh, um, Brad Kent of um, DOA. Did he write
1: that song? Who sung that song?
2: Uh, originally, I sang that song because it was like uh, a song that we did. Uh, I think how this came about. We were in Coquitlam at the time. And we just started playing punk rock, and Brad was, uh, we had a rock band, and Brad was a guitar player in the rock band called Stone uh, Crazy. And then we started playing punk rock after we saw the Ramones and got fired from our first few rock shows, right? And uh, so Brad kind of came up with the riff, and then we kind of twisted around and, and it around. But, that, you know, the, sad to say, Brad's dad was uh, an alcoholic, so there's hence the line. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, actually, that's the song My Old Man's a Bum. I'm getting mixed up. I don't give a shit. That was just a statement thing. So I think it's like combo writing. I don't know. It said, it was, that's why it kind of gets referred to, those two songs as... Uh,
1: Traditional.
2: As, as Vancouver Punk Traditional.
1: Who is singing that song? Because it doesn't really sound like you singing oh, it on it, the it's record. Randy's, uh, that's Randy's uh, song, He Sings Live. Oh, okay. I always yeah, wondered yeah. that because it doesn't actually sound no, yeah, like you, no, Joey. it's not me.
2: Uh, and, you know, I just help out on the choruses.
1: But if people want to hear you singing, Joey, next Friday night at the Commodore Bome, it's DOA and some other bands playing too, like the Transmitters and the Glow Abortions.
2: Yeah, there you go. There's uh, that going back. I mean, this guy's going as long as DOA. I mean, the Transmitters are a great band. I, I guess they've been going like five years or so, something like that. But the Dayglos, uh we played with them in uh, in February in Victoria. And it was really good. It was just a three-piece. Uh, Jimbo was back in Toronto, and I guess they're staying that way. So it's just... Uh, uh, Murray and Bonehead and uh, Willie on bass. And they sound great. It was really, it was totally rocking.
1: How many years totally do you think you've been hustling Joey Shithead?
2: Uh, Well, I I really got going at this when I was like um, 19, 18 or 19, because I went to university to become a lawyer, uh, to SFU. And, uh, you know, and I bought the, I enrolled in university one day, and the next day uh, I bought my first guitar and let me tell you, Nardwaar, it's been all downhill ever since. Because oh, I was
1: thinking of that. 30 years, 40 years of hustling. And I don't just mean like punk rock. So many other bands are like the Stone Crazy. This rock and roll lifestyle, which really doesn't have a lot of money. It is hustling, isn't it? Like, you've you made it this a, far. Yeah, well,
2: you, you travel around. You know how hard it is to uh, get paid from some of these guys, right? So, um, that, yeah. Yeah, it's been pretty good, right? I mean, for the most part, I mean, we had a really rough go for like uh, <clears throat> the first... 10, 12 years or whatever, we never made anything. I think, you know, the first time we ever made any money off uh, our music, uh, Wimpy and I were in London, England, and we had both bought over, like, boxes of old Subhumans and DOA singles, and uh, we both walked out with about six, 800 pounds uh, from selling them to used shops. That's the first time, because I'd been with, like, uh, by that time, five or six different record companies and never got paid anything.
1: And now you don't give money to the shops. You give money to yourself with your garage sales, right? Cut out the middleman. Yeah, middle man. I, have to, I have to have another one.
2: Uh, I, have, I still have lots of stuff, so I'm going to invite you down because I know you're an avid, avid collector, right? Um,
1: I love yeah. the stuff that I've got from you. have got some amazing stuff. I got a mentally ill 7-inch from you, Joey Shithead.
2: Right, right. Uh, yeah, well, the, the first thing we did have a lot of fun was uh, Laurie Mercer, my old manager, and normally means no old manager. We did it in his backyard a couple of times, and then I uh, did it a couple of times at, down at the railway club, uh, you know. Um, I had no plans for one this year, but sooner or later, there will be another sudden-death flash DOA
3: shithead garage sale.
1: And I think we have a caller. Caller, are you there?
3: Yes, Joey shithead. Go
1: ahead to Joey shithead, caller.
3: Hans von Klaus on this side. Listen, did they ever pay you in Poland? Poland, uh, Poland was good to
2: us. That's one of my favorite places, actually.
3: Do you Do know, it, the uh, old farts like me will still remember you, you know? <laughs> yeah,
2: okay. It's <Well, laughs> you know, so that's funny. Part. I don't know if you want to any of the shows uh, originally in Poland. We played there in...
1: Uh... What, I, can't, I can hardly hear you. What, oh. show, what shows did you go to? Did you go to any uh, shows?
3: Th- that was a festival in Poland. That was uh, Jarocin. He will remember that. He was the, well, actually the headline of the show. Oh, so with, um, with Deserter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that was
2: it, like uh, Deserter's 15th anniversary. and It was our 20th anniversary, so that would have been uh, about... 80, no, I mean, 98, I should say, right? And, yeah, yeah. yeah, that well, was a great show. And they're, they, they're still they're around. You know. By the Austrian police just
3: after that. Yeah, well, they're still around. You know, they have the biggest yeah. festival in, in, in Europe now, in Poland. It's uh, 450,000 people. Yeah, and I know the,
2: the one you mean, and we were going to go two years ago. It's basically... Uh, <laughs> that was a killing joke that day, yeah. Uh, uh, it's like the Woodstock of uh, Poland. They have 400,000 people play at this thing every August. I mean, not play. I mean, as uh, fans, I should say.
1: Any other questions at all, Hans, for Joey Shithead of DOA? Well,
3: yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, you know, I admire so many people for years, and you know, and then I had to regret, and I said, "Well, you, you rock, and you this and that," and then I had to take it back. But I, I don't think that would be the case with you, Joey. Oh, well, I you think can... you know. We all, you know, that's what I always look at things. You know, as long as you, as you, you, you can look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. Fuck the rest, you know? Yeah,
2: I mean, you, you know what? I, 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 hey, thanks very much for that, Hans. I think that uh, uh, nobody does anything perfectly, but if you try and do what you do well or be straight with people, then, you know, you're going to go, it's going to work out for you, I think, right? So.
1: It's totally incredible that Hans remembers you from Poland. Well, actually, it's totally incredible that Hans, that you've played to people in Poland, like from all over the world. Do you know how any audience count of how many people you've played for?
2: I don't know, it's like somewhere over, I, a couple of years ago, I, I estimated, because I didn't have an exact count, it's somewhere, it's over 3,000 shows and counting. So, you know what, I'm, I'm going to say it's got to be a couple million people, you know. And then, you know, so it, it's hard to say, because some of the shows are really huge, but hey, a whole bunch of them are like really small too, right? You know, so, um, you know, so that'd be, that'd be a tough one to get the exact, I should have been counting. My big
1: <laughs> Any other questions at all, Hans?
3: Yeah, I was kind of uh, thinking, uh, are you going to do some Jello Biafra thing? Keep going around, walking around, and uh, talking, you know?
2: Oh, you mean spoken word thing? Yeah, I did that a few years ago, and I'm always open to that. I usually only do spoken word um, if it's like I, I kind of prefer to do it. The same thing with the when I play acoustically because it's kind of similar because I kind of talk and tell stories and play songs that kind of thing. Uh, I can't prefer to do it when it's like a benefit or it's a, a cause or something like that, right? Well,
3: well you know why that. I'm asking that? Because, you know, it, in this country, we just, this is just kind of uh, it's such a sh- sheep, sheep nation, you know. There's the people, nobody wants to stick out. Yeah. And, know. you know, we're, I do this one
2: campaign, and it's like uh, people are more concerned. Oh, the vice presidential, presidential debate from the same night as, if, as the English language debate. I mean, what are you going to watch? Well, I live in Canada. I'm going to watch the Canadian one. I can yeah, watch well, the American thing. I can watch it later or they get replayed, you know? So, uh, well, that's, yeah, that's I think not even people that are pe- cheap and uh, people got to take action. I mean, that's kind of what, uh, what I'm about, right? You know, Because yeah, all this kind of change doesn't start from politicians. It starts from people right in their own neighborhood.
3: Well, yeah, well, I, I'm, I, I might be too cynical to believe that. Well, <laughs> okay, put it this way. Here's an example.
2: Uh, one of the biggest ones, and this happened one is the youth, uh, the Vietnam War, which was a horrible thing that went on for like uh, 30 years, uh, with the, at first the French, then the Americans, uh, you know, fighting for economic hegemony over Southeast Asia. Uh, that uh, people think that was actually President Gerald Ford that stopped it in 1975, but it was actually the people of America because they finally, finally realized how wrong it was and how many people had died. So, you know, but because politicians are opinion poll readers and they make their decisions based on that, so I mean, also, here's another example, like in uh, the Czech Republic, uh, when the uh, in uh, 1989, when uh, the Eastern Bloc, the wall fell, and control from Russia, the Soviet Union, that um, was at the One Plus Square in. Uh, yeah, we started uh, from Poland too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Of course, like all the countries there, and uh, the, I took this tour, and the guy said, "Joe, there's like." The protest started. Ten thousand people the first night, and then twenty, thirty, forty. By then, it was hundred thousand people. In eight days, the government collapsed. And, you know, because they realized, hey, and the, they're going to get us too. And the policemen were like, hey, they're going to get us too. You know what I mean? That's that's kind of what I mean. I mean. It can start small and can grow big if it's, uh, you know.
3: Yeah, you know what the concept to get a poet for a president, right? <laughs> well, say that again. Yeah, well, to get a poet for a president, you know, what's his name, Havel, right?
0: He was a yeah, poet yeah, and writer, they're, they're, and, you
3: know, they picked him as a president. You know, that could never happen in this country. You know, he's just this to yeah, be it. Likely, Some, we're more likely to say, well, in the United States, they picked actors. Well, yeah, well, they, I, well, they called them actors. They've never been one.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much. You're phoning in, Hans. Yeah
3: okay. Well, you know what? Not at not, all. I love you. I love you what you do. You know, it's just, uh, it's beautiful. Well, yeah, it's it's all it's good. good, good.
1: Well, thank you, Hans, and we invite other people to call too. Six zero four eight two 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 four eight seven six zero four UBC citr If you have any questions for Joey Shithead of DOA, who's playing next Friday night, thirty years of DOA at the Commodore Ballroom. Well, thanks so much, Hans, and do do to loot do.
3: Before I say do do, I wish I was healthy enough to talk to you in ten years, and I wish you the same. Oh, two-two. Okay, thank you. Right first up from both of us, do
1: do, uh, and. Thank you, Joey. Don't hang up quite yet, though, Joey. Uh, I I know, I know. I I have a couple more questions here. Actually, I was curious about, we're talking about 30 years ago and 30-year anniversary. Are any of the clothes you have now the same clothes that you would wear on stage back in the day, like your cut-off Max shirt? Do you have any of the same clothes you use? Uh,
2: I I have. uh, I've got two of the Max shirts that are back from, like, when we did the whole um, 1986, 87, the whole hockey video thing with taking care of business. I've got two of those. Uh the T shirts uh, and all the everything else are all rotted and gone, right? You know?
1: That's what I was gonna say about your garage shells, really neat. I bought a couple of records from you. I think I bought like a damn single and a, yeah. uh, I think it was I think uh, what was the other one? I think it was an advert and what's really neat is wrote J S on it. So when I've shown it to people, not only is like a cool English punk rock artifact, a rare record, thank you, Joey, it says your signature is on it, J S.
2: Yeah, I it, it said well I end up marking all my records. So I went to um California, one time on a DOA tour, and I had all these original punk rock albums, you know, from 77 onwards to about 81, about 300 of them. And at the Plaza, a famous old punk rock house in Vancouver, for your listeners, um, somebody broke into my room and stole these 300 records. So, but I had put my initials, JS, on uh, everything, right? And, you know, at, the, at least one part of the record. And so it, from then on, I, uh, for a few years, I kept going to parties and I'd sort of flip through to see if I could find anything but I never did find my records, right? So,
1: 30 years of punk rock, but you weren't the first band to release a punk rock LP in Vancouver, were you? It was the band No Exit. How mad were you at the band No Exit for beating you and putting out a punk rock LP? You were mad, weren't you?
2: Uh, not really. I think that sort of whole thing was... I think Ken, uh, the manager, was like a little bit more um, dismayed, and he kind of played up that angle. Um, the No Exit record, for people who haven't seen it, is really hilarious because on one side it's the them in the poses of the clash first album and their side is them uh... in the poses of the damned uh... first album right uh... and it is really really rough uh... pretty interesting and uh... If I was if I was mad at the time, I, I'm not anymore. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. There's I, I think was, that's fine.
1: Theirs was the first punk rock LP to come out. The first punk rock LP. It wasn't the punk rock 45 to come out. That's right. That's
2: the funny thing because at the time, I mean, the very first band, the Furies. Uh, I don't think they ever actually got out a, a single, which was kind of a sad thing, right? You know.
1: They recorded a couple songs, which I think ended up on that Last Call compilation years later on yeah. Zulu on CD, but yeah. no actual vinyl. I think Tim Ray is acknowledged, isn't he? As the guy. Tim who Ray would the be the first
2: we had, that, that, Tim Ray was great. I mean, the, the the first show we did in Victoria, because like, okay, here's the, the chronological order. Like the, the Furies were the first punk rock band in Vancouver. And then Disrags were the first one in Victoria. I guess they happened around a similar time, you know, early 77. And then the Skulls, so we came along uh, August or July or August, uh, 77. And, uh, uh, but later on, like early '78, we went over and played in Victoria with Tim Ray and AV and the Dish Rags. And the, the funny thing was, uh, we agreed to meet the Dish Rags at their school to give out flyers, right? And they were like 16 at the time, so we ran to the school. We knew you know, they told us which classrooms they're in, and we gave them a bunch of flyers. And we ran through the entire their high school, throwing flyers all over the place for the the, the UA Tim Ray Dish rag show and uh, uh, then we were being chased by the the principal and a bunch of the the larger male teachers, right? Uh, <laughs> and then which they finally accosted us outside, and I think they threatened to call the cops, and we drove off, right? So
1: That was the Tim Ray connection. Tim Ray, number yeah, one. Yeah, Tim
2: Ray was on that show, and then we played the show last night, in a, a, that night in Esquimalt, right? And uh, Yeah, I liked him a lot, and he had make, made some great music. Joey, that's where Bill from uh, the Point Six came from, too.
1: Joe, your new CD is called Northern Avenger, D-O-A, done by Bob Rock. And I was thinking, what sort of recordings had you done with Bob Rock before? Because it had been in back of my mind that Loverboy had been recording the song D-O-A. Loverboy have a song called D-O-A. Did they? Yes, it goes D-O-A-A-A-A-A. It was in the back of my mind that Loverboy were recording D-O-A-A-A, and then across the hall, you were recording we're D-O-A, and it was all done by Bob Rock.
2: Well, uh, Bob was involved, uh, I, did, I, I, I didn't know or I'd forgotten that Loverboy had that. Um, uh, Bob was uh, involved as the assistant uh, to Ron Obvious, uh, at Little Mountain Sound, which was like pretty well, I don't know, maybe the best studio in Canada at the time, one of, the, one of them, right? It was on 7th, West 7th Avenue. And uh, so what would happen that bands, that punk rock bands uh, um, would go in there at midnight till six in the morning, like Young Canadians, DOA, and um, and Bob would run the mix and Ron would be the assistant engineer or Ron would mix it and then Bob would be the assistant engineer. And at that time, we were all about 18, 19, I think Bob and Ron were like, 22 or 24 around there, right? Bob's a couple years older than me, right? So, and uh, so he, there's two singles. Uh, he worked on uh, Prisoner 13 and on uh, the World War III single.
1: So you hadn't worked with him a lot then. Did he remember a lot about that time? Because he did yeah, work he on a did. few that, bands. Yeah, that's pretty
2: interesting. Because I kind of kept in contact with him. I'm not, close, we're not like close pals or anything like that. But you know, um, that, yeah, that that was pretty interesting. When we did uh, agree to work with him, or he agreed to work with us, whatever. That uh, he was doing. That's a good. He said that was a great era in music. That whole early alternative scene in Vancouver from '78 to '82 or whatever. And uh, he said he was really proud of it and the stuff that he was involved in. Because for your listeners there, of course, Bob was in a a band called the Paolas, and the Paolas were uh, kind of a punk rock band, but not really. Like a little touch of punk and a little touch of ska. And they were the one band kind of of that group that really went on to a lot of success, right? at least uh, airport wise right
1: Actually, the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show listeners, Joey Shitted, remember the Payolas as an appearance by Jade Blade of the Dishrags in the Eyes of a Stranger video. That's how the Nardwarta Human Serviette show... Was, I <laughs> okay. I
2: know, I'd forgotten about that. I haven't seen that in ages, right? Because so. Jade
1: Blade of the Dishrags, it's her eyes, and you've got the eyes of a stranger.
2: Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that's true. I've totally forgotten that, right? So
1: Bob Rock went on to develop quite a career in music. You went on to develop a career in music. You're still doing the music. We're speaking here to Joey Shitted from DOA, 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. If you have any questions for Joey, Joey's playing next Friday night at the Commodore. 30 years of DOA. 30 years of DOA. I hear, though, Joey, are you involved with the Hockey Night in Canada Anthem Challenge? Are you going to be judging what's going to possibly be the next anthem for Hockey Night in Canada?
2: Well, the funny thing about that was that uh, there's a new song on the new album. It's called Donnybrook, and... Uh and I was just thinking, uh, you know, because when they decided they wouldn't use the Hockey Night in Canada theme, I'd done a couple interviews with the CBC, you know, they're picking me out as a, a hockey rock type guy, right, obviously. And, uh, and I was saying, hey, the natural replacement for that song is Tom and Tom's uh, The Hockey Song. Well, of course, the CBC is too cheap for that, right? Um, so then I was just about to submit the song Donnybrook on Northern Avenger, and uh as some reason, I couldn't get the, cut, the, the song uploaded, right, so they could uh, listen to it. And then uh, I got an email said, do you want to be a judge on the panel to pick the song, right? But you know what happened? They, they sent the songs to me while I was away on these rancid shows, and now the thing's closed.
1: Oh, no! So you couldn't choose any of your own bands then? Did yeah, it or,
2: or even... I wouldn't even think that you couldn't get a DOA song in there because the CBC's way too mild. But I thought I at least could eliminate uh, the, some of the miles and miles of dross. Uh, like, I listened to some of the songs, and boy, there was some pure crap on there, right? You know, so, because I think if it becomes a popularity contest, we could just end up with a really horrible song at the start, right? Um, you know, they, they want to do it like uh, narrow it down and then have people vote like American Idol, right? So. You know, I, I mean, you call that sort of pop democracy, I suppose, but I don't think that's the way to pick best song, right? So, But the funny thing is, uh, the song Donnybrook, uh, they're shooting the new, they have shot and finished uh, the new version of Slop Shot, and uh, Donnybrook is the, the lead song on that movie. And there's two other D.O.A. songs from this album uh, in the movie as well.
1: Joey, on your brand new CD, Northern Avenger, you actually thank Bruce Allen
2: well, he booked, uh, yeah, I know that's odd for sure. I, I, I totally got to agree with you. And I grimaced a bit when uh, we put that in the credits. But he is Bob Rock's manager, so that's how that ended up there.
1: Because you've had some dealings with him in past, haven't you? There's been some DOA's he, with Bruce pretty Allen. He's a individual. And would, we never really had
2: anything horrible, but it was like uh, he's really, you know, if you think about punk rock and banker in the old days, and then you think about Bruce Allen would be the antithesis of that. You know what I mean? And uh, because he was so, you know, he was like, ah, oh, punk rock sucks. You can't make any money off of a goddamn type thing. You know, you know how he talks, right? So he's a, a, a very boisterous individual, right? So. Um,
1: but it's great, though. He's still going, and you're still going. It's yeah, great. It's, it's, Thank you for continuing it on.
2: Yeah, no, no. And, and uh, hey, it's you know what? Uh, I, I, I thank all the people that keep coming to shows. Otherwise, we wouldn't be continuing on. You know what I mean? Well,
1: I was thinking that perhaps you might have helped with some legal stuff. You've been involved in so many different record labels yeah. over the years. Profile Records, Fringe Records, Restless Records, CD Presents, oh, yeah, Essential yeah. Noise. What was Profile Records like? Because that was after you kind of left Alternative Tentacles. You went to Profile in New York. What was that all about? That was kind of an exciting time. Were you like the big hit at the New Music Seminar in 87? Things were going great profile records run DMC
2: yeah that, that I guess that was kind of the sense that um, uh, you know we got out of it in a sense and some other people too for sure like uh, uh, Ken our manager thought it would be like a, a good uh, a good move for the band right and we'd done well with alternative tentacles and they were like uh, uh, easily uh, one of the best companies we've ever been with and one of the only ones that ever actually paid us for anything right um, you know so so we signed with uh profile and I uh, met the president Gary plotnicki and uh this some big cushy uh, uh profile party with all these people hanging around you know Didi Ramon was there he did like a rap uh single There was it D.D. something in the Kings or remember that
1: yes, his rap thing was amazing
2: yeah, yeah okay so and uh so I met the president and he talked to us uh it's kind of was like smile tap you know when the smile tap meets uh Sir Edmund Hogg or whatever, played by um, the guy from the Avengers, right? And, uh, and he goes, how long have you guys been in a band? And uh, I go, well, eight and a half years. And he goes, that's funny, I was in a band for eight and a half years. You know, it's just like the most corny line to try and get us to relate to him, right? Uh, you know, about, uh, hey, we were stupid, uh, not that young, but still stupid, and we fell uh, for this whole thing, they, uh, put out one record, and we could never get the The record was uh, True North, Strong or Free. And we could never get the record back. And, uh, oh, they were assholes, uh, to say the least.
1: So you're still trying to get the record back?
2: I have tried to get the record back. And there's the one VOA record you can't get. Um, murder is also hard to find, too, but you can find a few copies. Uh, but everything else I've gotten the rights back for, right? You know, that's taken a long time, right? But um, that's one record I, I can't get back, and I, they won't sell it back.
1: How did you get the CD Presents record back? That was bloody but unbowed. Because oh, so a that lot was of, a
2: nightmare, and uh, that cost like about $150,000 in lawyer's fees, right? So, um, How
1: did you get it back when other bands like, say, Subhumans or the Avengers haven't been able to get back their records?
2: Well, we really took them to task, and we had a pretty good lawyer, like an old friend of ours from Vancouver, Pat Nichols. Uh, she had moved to San Francisco, and um, so we hired her and her, her firm, uh, to work on this. And uh, it, it was the, the, the record in question. At first, we got in a lawsuit about, um, let's, no, it was about Bloody Button Bowed, which is a, a comp of the uh, first two DOA albums. And then he was pressing tons uh, all over the place and not paying, and we got in this lawsuit. And then uh, what he won was the right to keep producing it at CD Presents Mexico and CD Presents Austria. So he could still keep producing them and then, you know, run some uh, illegal copies into the United States or Canada and sell them there. So he's still making a profit. Like, we end up with a compromise on that one. Then we got another lawsuit with them over uh, Let's Wreck the Party, which is the 1985 album that we did. And, uh, you know, he tried to tell the judge, oh, these guys are going to sell a half a million records, blah, 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 blah. And um, the judge put this, like huge bond we had to put out find a way to put up $200,000 which uh you know at that time was well it's big now but it was immense then right and uh so yeah it was really expensive and uh it sucked you know Jill. I advise people to avoid lawsuits you know very things they sell things man-o-man-o. you know what I mean
1: was it contracts that were the problem back then? What was the actually the, he just had you over a barrel with the contracts, wasn't it? Well, you know, if
2: it, uh, just uh, if like, anybody's what's the had word any of, experience that music lawyering or looking at contracts, that what contract a contract doesn't really matter if the person in one of the parties doesn't uh, sign it in good faith and has no intention of acting upon uh, that agreement in good faith. I told you I studied to be a lawyer for a little bit, right? So, um, you know, so you have to uh the other party's got to want to help you, and you got to want to help them, and that's usually why a band signs to a record company, right? Because they think that's going to happen, right? And uh, it just didn't happen, so we've just, you know, the contracts were legal, and uh, we had read them, we had a lawyer, you know, you have a lawyer look over them, right? You know, so it's just a bad scene, and uh, one I wish to never be involved in again, right?
1: I was looking at a YouTube video. It's a DOA interview on the show in Winnipeg. I think it's called Alternative Rock Stand. You guys were featured there, an alternative video show, like a cool cable access soundproof type show yeah. from the mid-'80s from Winnipeg, early-'80s in Winnipeg. And you had a guy in your band called Lucky Ned or Greg. Who was that? Oh, uh, uh,
2: Ned Peckerwood. Um, after, then we quit in about 83, and uh, i trying to think if he was in the... He was there in eighty one, no, eighty one, and then he wanted to quit and joined the Point of Sticks for about a year and a half, right, and um, something like that, a two, a three, anyways, uh, and then we quit. And so we were looking for a drummer, and uh, a friend of ours in California um, uh, recommended this guy, and we were just down there mixing. Actually, I think the Bloody bowed record that we got in this lawsuit over with uh, CD Presents, right, and uh, Greg James uh, was the. Drummer he stayed with us for all of 1984, so uh, he got to go to Europe on this, like, two and a half month tour, the first time we'd ever, well, we'd been to England previously, but we'd never been to continental Europe, and uh, so that that was a real eye-opener, and, uh, you know, but uh, he got this nickname, uh, Ned Peckerwood, right, so, and that's what we ended up calling him, rather than Greg James, right, so.
1: Chris Walters' book is out right now. He's got a whole bunch of books, but his specific book that he's been promoting right now is his Personality Crisis. Yeah, biography. I haven't
2: read it yet, but it's, yeah, no, it's cool. a uh, really good band.
1: You are mentioned in it. Again, being pretty tough and scary, Joey. Thank you for speaking to me, to Human Serviette. Again, we're speaking here to Joey Shithead from DOA, playing next Friday night at the Commodore Ballroom, 30 years of DOA. In the book, Joey, he talks about the tough DOA, where you, Joey Shithead, broke a bottle over someone's head in Winnipeg. Do you remember anything like that happening?
2: Yeah, no, no, I remember that very well. It's the very first time we went to the peg, and... uh... We played at, uh, it was called the Hebrew, uh, sick, uh, temple hall, something like that. And, uh, I forget who the opening bands were. And we arrived like kind of late and played. And this guy was throwing chairs around against the wall and then right near people. And, uh, you know, some people in the, at the hall were trying to sell him down. And then he came up by the stage and he winged this like, uh, uh, bottle and just missed me. And they just missed biscuits. Right. And, uh, so a bunch of our buddies from Edmonton that were trying with us, uh, the oh, was something boys, uh, they were calling us the Bowery Boys, right? And Kind of like a street gang type thing. And uh, they went up and grabbed the guy, and uh, and we all dropped our instruments and ran out. And I went and found the Heiken bottle, and then I, um, I thought they was, the guy was there, and I went and smashed over his forehead. And then they, then they threw him out the hall through the double doors, and then Randy went and uh, beat him up a bit, right, so...
1: Is that in your book?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it is, yeah. It was like, uh, I think the, I ended up as being like, uh, I bet you that guy never threw another bottle again in his life.
1: I thought it was really interesting, though. Chris Walter's book not only is it about personality crisis, it kind of documents punk rock in Canada, Western Canada specifically. And I asked Chris Walter about this, the Carling Liberation Army. Can you tell the people a bit about that? That sounds amazing.
2: Yeah, it, uh, it's all true. It's it? Pretty funny thing, there was a brewery down at um, 12th and Arbutus. There's a bunch of, like, condos and apartments there now. But it was Carlin O'Keefe, which uh, later got bought out by uh, Molson, right? And uh, so when we ran out of beer, uh, I I don't even know how we heard about this, right? But it was sort of like uh, we would uh, hop in uh, my old uh, Volkswagen Rabbit that I had and uh, drive down there, and there was a hole in the fence, right? So I'd stay with the car, you know, keep the motor running, you know, just like, uh, you know, you know other types of jobs you do that too right you know and uh uh three or four guys would sneak around, sneak around the wire fence and all this beer would be sitting on the back of the loading dock and you know it's you know two or three in the morning and there's no security guards there's no workers because it's the night shift and there's not running you know um, that many people around and uh we'd go until the car was full or until the one of the guys running dropped the case of beer and smashed Then, then of course the security guy would come running out and go hey, hey and then we'd drive off uh Across boulevards and stuff like that, trying to get away, right? So
1: this was going back to the plaza. Were there like contests to see who could take the most? What was the most beer that you got?
2: Yeah, the most beer was actually set by. uh, Oh, yes, not the Bowery Boys. Was that the the Bowery Boys? Or uh, it was like Arnold um, and Simon Snotface and uh, Gary Genius. Uh, They had this house uh, down in uh, Strathcona uh, that they rented, and uh, one night I think. It's on the last DOA record, like Simon's actually singing and yelling at the end of that particular song, the Beer Liberation Army, because I wrote a song about that whole incident, or incidents, and uh, like 108 cases of beer.
1: And the beer was not good, i.e. the labels were printed bad or something like that? That's how come they well, left them out?
2: Um, I don't know what the deal with that was, but the, the funny thing was, the very first time we did, we are all back at my house in South Burnaby, and um, we started drinking it, and you're, you're talking about this in 1981 or something like that. And being in Canada, we had never really heard of light beer or tried light beer. And we were all drinking this beer going, what the hell is wrong with this type thing, right? And uh, then we finally went, oh, light beer, oh, I thought that's an American stuff. <laughs> so, we're like, so we made sure we didn't take that again.
1: Ken Lester, your manager, yeah. he kind of set up the plaza, didn't he? That was a place where a lot of you guys hung out. Is he now in Whistler, B.C., having a plaza in Whistler?
2: Yeah, he's got this beautiful house with uh, old uh, Gary Taylor, not from Gary Taylor's rock room. Um, but Gary Taylor, uh, also known as Scary Failure, who was no rest his soul, he's not with us anymore either. Um, he had a lot uh, in Whistler that was at the time was twenty thousand dollars, and uh, his partners couldn't afford to keep paying, uh, you know, one hundred fifty dollars a month, whatever the mortgage was on it, right? And so Ken and Dave Gregg, old guitar player from DOA, along with Gary Taylor, they bought this lot, and uh, a couple years ago they built this fabulous uh, house. In uh, Whistler, and one, you know one of those side roads you take when you go through the main village, right? So, uh, so Ken is up there, spending his time up there. Yeah,
1: he's an interesting character, isn't yeah, he? Like, he before is, yeah, yeah. He, before he joined DOA, he had done quite a bit before he was the manager of DOA. Was he really like the organizer of the Gastown riot? Like he was really involved, wasn't he? the yeah, famous yeah, Gastown it's, it's,
2: riot? Well, that's what him and David Spanner, who's now the the. Um, uh, movie critic for the pro- one, of the movie critics for the Province paper.
1: Yeah, David was saying it was a strong yippie movement, like a strong yippie yeah. hippie movement, and that kind of helped the punk scene because Vancouver was like basically after San Francisco number two with all the hippie yippie type stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. And they were, and they weren't just uh, hippies in the way you see them on TV now, like uh, in that '70s show or some stuff, crap like that. They were actually organized, and they, they protested wars, and they protested. the uh, other BS and uh, Ken, who went on to become a manager like in '71, uh, the cops said uh, Mayor Tom Campbell, who was uh, no relation to uh, uh, Glenn Campbell, Gordon Campbell, or uh, Larry Campbell, um, he ordered the, the Vancouver police in uh, on their horseback with riot clubs and started beating all these hippies, right? And yippies. And then uh, Ken and I, I can't remember the other person, they were hauled off the court for inciting a riot. Their defense was that they were out handing out free ice cream. And the judge looked at the evidence and just completely chucked the case out, right? So, um, so yeah, he was a, a, a yippie uh, activist and an anarchist, and so was David Spanner. And uh, they had a lot of influence on the scene. And that's why I, I think the real big reason why the bankruptcy came one of the big reasons why we came up with more interesting stuff than they did in Toronto, you know, that uh, there was a, kind of a political unrest protest edge to the whole thing, right? Whereas in Toronto, I mean, I'm not saying the bands were bad, but it was more like they wanted to do stuff that might get them signed to a bigger label. So, you know, there's no labels out in Vancouver, so, you know, there's nobody going to put out your record didn't matter how good you were, right? Yep.
1: Winding up here, Joey Shithead of DOA. DOA playing next Friday night at the Commodore Ballroom. 30 years of DOA with the Dayglow abortions and the transmiters. You mentioned Dave Gregg. Yeah. In that interview, that YouTube interview done by Alternative Rock Stand out of Winnipeg, Dave Gregg uses the quote, megadecibel minstrels. I love that. Megadecibel yeah. minstrels. Was that used anywhere else?
2: Well, we saw that uh, we went the first time we went to, I guess, in '85. It was it was this big article, like in the NME, like a big music paper there, and uh, that's what they went, doA, mega decibel minstrels, and we all realized, wow, well, what a great uh, uh, handle that was, because when you really think about like punk rock, it really relates back to minstrels going from town to town. And telling stories of the evil robber baron over in the next valley or whatever that kind of thing, and and that that translated into folk music uh, yeah, on this continent, like in the late in two centuries ago, in the tens and twenties and thirties of the, the last century, and then the came got into that moved into underground rock music of the early fifties, uh, the underground jazz scene of the late forties fifties and then the counterculture of the late 60s, and then, hence, punk rock, and then came along about 76, 77. So it's all related back to minstrels.
1: When did you first meet the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Because they famously wear a DOA video and went, oh, when did you first meet the Peppers?
2: It was at that same new music seminar in 86 when we got signed to Profile Records, and um, we are just walking outside and Flea, uh, they were there playing, but they weren't known at the time. You know, They hadn't be, become big time, right? And uh he was sitting outside and goes, Hey, it's the DOA guy's right and he introduced himself, you know. We played down LA millions of times, so he, he knew us from that and uh he just said, Hey, when I get depressed I put on Hardcore E one and that gets me going again type thing. So I met them and then the shirt in the under the bridge uh, video, uh John Carden and uh Wimpy went golfing with uh Anthony and uh Flea, I think.
1: Your Japanese CD is titled DOA Keep Running with the Great Canadian Rock Legend.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's the Japanese, there's uh, seven Japanese bands, uh, cover a total of 12 uh, DOA songs, and then there's two DOA songs by DOA at the end, like the 13th and 14th tracks. Uh, And it is really good, uh, the way they've done these songs, and... uh, you can get it at sudden dot com it's all it's impossible to find in stores here but I, I have a couple boxes left of them right but hey anyway, we went to japan the one time i went there in 2001 and the guy uh, from there the tour guy record company guy said hey let's do this and got these bands to cover do cover versions of doa and it's really good the way they do it right but obviously it has a bit of a um uh, funny effect, because they all had like, uh, heavy Japanese accents when they sing the songs, right? Well,
1: how is your biography, I Shithead, going to work in German? Yeah, that's how
2: it's been translated. They're actually working on a French version right now, too, right? So, I guess we'll be out sometime next year.
1: Joey Shithead, winding up here, lastly, you've mentioned about pissing on the crowd before yeah. in your book at the Fab Map. I've heard other people say that you didn't just piss on the crowd there, that you pissed up and down the coast. Was there any other pissing?
2: Uh, there's, the, the, I think the funniest one really, yeah, they're in Portland. I was introducing the Dills, and then as I was introducing them, I pissed on the audience, right? And, uh, but the funniest one was I used to have a beef with, um, uh, Steve Lucky, Nazi dog from the Vile Tones, right? And, uh, he was sort of the king shit of the Toronto scene, like I was in the Skull at the time. And we're on the dance floor, the, the Ugly were playing, and, uh, um, <clears throat> he goes, uh, he called me some name, and he pushed me or something like that, right? so uh i i I think we just previous to that i as they were playing, I had pissed on the floor, right? So when he pushed me, I grabbed him, and uh, uh I rolled him around in the piss just for fun.
1: was this when the viol were playing, or was he just at the gig
2: he I can't remember what they it was this place called Club Davis, this weird uh, gay club that was the only punk rock place in Toronto and uh and all the bands played there, so was, so we' were basically we were down there three or four nights a week hanging out. So I can't remember if they were going to play that night or he was just making
1: the scene. Well, thanks so much for phoning into the yeah. Nardware to Human Serviette Radio here show, Joey Shithead. Really appreciate that. Next Friday night at the Commodore Ballroom, DOA, 30 years of DOA. Yeah, it
2: should
1: I- be good. And we're with the Transmitters and, of course, the Daigle Abortions. We're going to end the Nardware to Human Serviette Radio show with Still Up punk what can you say about the song still a punk off your brand new northern avenger cd
2: well that's that's funny that's actually where bob had a big influence because i'd rewritten it as a song about uh like american idol contestants it was called american idol and uh he went like yeah the song's good but the the lyrics are like so 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 um i had about a month and i went back and rewrote the thing right and uh changed the melody line and all that kind of thing and uh it, i think it just kind of sums up that uh you know if you really believe in the first place, then you it doesn't matter what you look like or maybe go on and do something else like that you really the, the great thing about punk rock it gave a lot of people freedom to think for themselves and uh kind of take charge of their lives right and that's kind of what the song's about, I'd say
1: and we might also get to mountains that we climbed as well because yeah. you mentioned Chicago in there, where I know Bev Davies ventured with you to Chicago that's right,
2: yeah, she uh, hit it she came to london uh, l a uh Chicago. Um, yeah, uh, Mountain That We Climb, that's kind of the story of DOA, right? And just talks about uh, traveling around and uh, getting harassed and busted and all that kind of thing, right? And uh, that's the oldest song on the record. I actually wrote that uh, God, about 18 years ago, and I I went and looked at it again about six months ago and uh, changed a couple of lyrics, and we recorded it, right? So there's one old song on the record.
1: Are any of the songs here that you had with your Band of Rebels CD, like any crossover? Uh... I was thinking- yes, uh,
2: the the reggae the the reggae one called was uh, poor poor boy, uh, that was originally called uh, consume like as an overconsumption type thing, and uh, Sean from Profile we were work- working on and he turned off the vocals and said uh, you know it's a great music track, R- rewrite the lyrics so I did and I rewrote the melody line and uh, yeah and I really like that one it's one of my favorites about you know about about Vancouver you know?
1: anything else you want to add to the people out there at all Joey shithead.
2: Uh, just that, uh, you know, that's, uh, it, well, you, you plug the show a lot of times, so thank you for that, and, uh, you know, hey, thank you for sticking around, you've been going at this for 20 years, or, you know, so that's, uh, hats off to you there, Nardwar.
1: Well, and congrats to you for 30 years, and speaking of that, Joey Shedden, why should people care about DOA, 30 years, why should people care?
2: Um, I think the thing is, what, DOA is a progressive ban and we keep trying to deal with the issues that are on hand at the time, and... And that's really, what, to me, what's not, because we're forward-thinking and talking about stuff that's going on right now, uh, that thought, there's, of course, there's a sense of nostalgia with DOA, but that being forward-thinking is what stops us from being a nostalgia act. So it's like, to me, it's it's a powerful band that, like, uh, gives you a real kick in the head. And I mean that in a positive way. And to some people, they, they don't like it. You know, we're we shit these turvers so that's why the band's still around really and if people want to go they can go That's their prerogative
1: well thanks so much Joey keep on rocking in the free world and do do the doo do do Holy smokes, I can't believe I'm part of the coolest club in the world! Uh club? Yeah? So, uh, what club is that? CITR! As a club member, I get ginormous discounts on the Friends of CITR card, which in itself, Timmy, I must say, is pretty amazing. I get dirt cheap prices at stores and shots them at all the time anyway! To be honest, it feels like being in a club within a club!
0: Wow. Hey, I want a friends of CITR card. You
1: don't even have to be a member to get one, although clearly you'd be that much cooler if you were a member. Go purchase your friends a CITR card down at CITR, or at special events they sponsor, such as concerts, membership drives, and shindig.
0: I got it. It feels like having special powers. I go into stores and bam! Discounts. Tis what I said.
3: Are you a UBC student taking first year economics, math, chemistry, or physics?
0: That stuff is hard.
3: Are you feeling like you need some tutoring? That's OK, because the AMS offers free and appointment tutoring for students in these subjects. Whoa!
0: Whoa! How does it work?
3: It's on a first come, first serve basis, and there's no need to sign up. Just show up with your books and your questions.
0: Whoa! When does it happen?
3: Monday to Thursday from 3 to 7 at the Sub-Pacific Spirit Cafeteria, located beside the Starbucks.
0: Whoa! A plus, here I come.
1: The following is a live presentation of CITR News.
0: CITR 101.9 FM presents News 101, Vancouver's volunteer-produced student and community newscast. Now, here's your host, Rita Farkas.
3: Good evening. Coming up on the program, a boom in the seniors' population in the Fraser Valley is causing health authorities to call for private senior care. Stephen Harper wants to put off the defamation.